Chapter Two, Part One of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Bobby. A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Chapter Two, Part One. Uncle Charles smoked such black twist that at last his nephew suggested to him to enjoy his morning smoke in a little outhouse at the end of the garden. "'Very good, Simon.' "'All serene, Simon,' said the old man tranquilly. "'Anywhere you like. The outhouse will do me nicely. It will be more salubrious.' "'Damn me,' said Mr. Dedalus frankly, "'if I know how you can smoke such villainous awful tobacco.' It's like gunpowder, by God. It's very nice, Simon, replied the old man, very cool and mollifying. Every morning, therefore, Uncle Charles repaired to his outhouse, but not before he had creased and brushed scrupulously his back hair and brushed and put on his tall hat. While he smoked, the brim of his tall hat and the bowl of his pipe were just visible beyond the jams of the outhouse door. His arbor, as he called the reeking outhouse, which he shared with the cat and the garden tools, served him also as a sounding-box, and every morning he hummed contentedly one of his favorite songs, Oh, twine me a bower, or blue eyes and golden hair, or the groves of Blarney, while the gray and blue coils of smoke rose slowly from his pipe and vanished in the pure air. During the first part of the summer in Blackrock, Uncle Charles was Stephen's constant companion. Uncle Charles was a hale old man with a well-tanned skin, rugged features, and white side-whiskers. On weekdays he did messages between the house in Carysford Avenue and those shops in the main street of the town with which the family dealt. Stephen was glad to go with him on these errands, for Uncle Charles helped him very liberally to handfuls of whatever was exposed in open boxes and barrels outside the counter. He would seize a handful of grapes and sawdust, or three or four American apples, and thrust them generously into his grandnephew's hand, while the shopman smiled uneasily. And, on Stephen's feigning reluctance to take them, he would frown and say, "'Take them, sir.' Do you hear me, sir? They are good for your bowels." When the order list had been booked, the two would go on to the park where an old friend of Stephen's father, Mike Flynn, would be found seated on a bench waiting for them. Then would begin Stephen's run round the park. Mike Flynn would stand at the gate near the railway station, watch in hand, while Stephen ran round the track in the style Mike Flynn favoured, his head high lifted his knees well lifted, and his hands held straight down by his sides. When the morning practice was over, the trainer would make his comments, and sometimes illustrate them by shuffling along for a yard or so comically in an old pair of blue canvas shoes. A small ring of wonderstruck children and nursemaids would gather to watch him and linger even when he and Uncle Charles had sat down again and were talking athletics and politics. Though he had heard his father say that Mike Flynn had put some of the best runners of modern times through his hands, Stephen often glanced with mistrust at his trainer's flabby, stubble-covered face, as it bent over the long, stained fingers through which he rolled his cigarette, 
and with pity at the mild, lustreless blue eyes which would look up suddenly from the task and gaze vaguely into the blue distance, while the long, swollen fingers ceased their rolling and grains and fibres of tobacco fell back into the pouch. On the way home Uncle Charles would often pay a visit to the chapel and, as the font was above Stephen's reach, the old man would dip his hand and then sprinkle the water briskly about Stephen's clothes and on the floor of the porch. While he prayed, he knelt on his red handkerchief and read above his breath from a thumb-blackened prayer-book wherein catchwords were printed at the foot of every page. Stephen knelt at his side, respecting, though he did not share, his piety. He often wondered what his granduncle prayed for so seriously. Perhaps he prayed for the souls in purgatory, or for the grace of a happy death, or perhaps he prayed that God might send him back a part of the big fortune he had squandered in Cork. On Sundays Stephen, with his father and his granduncle, took their constitutional. The old man was a nimble walker in spite of his corns, and often ten or twelve miles of the road were covered. The little village of Stillorgan was the parting of the ways. Either they went to the left towards the Dublin mountains, or along the Goatstown Road and thence into Dundrum, coming home by Sandyford. Trudging along the road, or standing in some grimy wayside public-house, his elders spoke constantly of the subjects nearer their hearts, of Irish politics, of Munster, and of the legends of their own family, to all of which Stephen lent an avid ear. Words which he did not understand he said over and over to himself till he had learned them by heart, and through them he had glimpses of the real world about him. The hour when he too would take part in the life of that world seemed drawing near, and in secret he began to make ready for the great part which he felt awaited him, the nature of which he only dimly apprehended. His evenings were his own, and he pored over a ragged translation of the Count of Monte Cristo. The figure of that dark avenger stood forth in his mind for whatever he had heard or divined in childhood of the strange and terrible. At night he built up on the parlour table an image of the wonderful island cave out of transfers and paper flowers and coloured tissue paper and strips of the silver and golden paper in which chocolate is wrapped. When he had broken up this scenery, weary of its tinsel, there would come to his mind the bright picture of Marseilles of sunny trellises and of Mercedes. Outside Blackrock, on the road that led to the mountains, stood a small whitewashed house in the garden of which grew many rose-bushes, and in this house, he told himself, another Mercedes lived. Both on the outward and on the homeward journey he measured distance by this landmark, and in his imagination he lived through a long train of adventures, marvellous as those in the book itself, towards the close of which there appeared an image of himself, grown older and sadder, standing in a moonlit garden with Mercedes, who had so many years before slighted his love, and with a sadly proud gesture of refusal, saying, Madam, I never eat muscatel grapes. He became the ally of a boy named Aubrey Mills, and founded with him a gang of adventurers in the avenue. Aubrey carried a whistle dangling from his buttonhole and a bicycle lamp attached to his belt, while the others had short sticks thrust dagger-wise through theirs. Stephen, 
who had read of Napoleon's plain style of dress, chose to remain unadorned, and thereby heightened for himself the pleasure of taking counsel with his lieutenant before giving orders. The gang made forays into the gardens of old maids, or went down to the castle and fought a battle on the shaggy, weed-grown rocks, coming home after it weary stragglers with the stale odours of the foreshore in their nostrils and the rank oils of the sea-rack upon their hands and in their hair. Aubrey and Stephen had a common milkman, and often they drove out in the milk-car to Carrick-mines, where the cows were at grass. While the men were milking, the boys would take turns in riding the tractable mare round the field. But when autumn came the cows were driven home from the grass, and the first sight of the filthy cow-yard at Stradbrook with its foul green puddles and clots of liquid dung and steaming bran-troughs sickened Stephen's heart. The cattle, which had seemed so beautiful in the country on sunny days, revolted him, and he could not even look at the milk they yielded. The coming of September did not trouble him this year, for he was not to be sent back to Clongo's. The practice in the park came to an end when Mike Flynn went into hospital. Aubrey was at school and had only an hour or two free in the evening. The gang fell asunder, and there were no more nightly forays or battles on the rocks. Stephen sometimes went round with the car which delivered the evening milk, and these chilly drives blew away his memory of the filth of the cow-yard, and he felt no repugnance at seeing the cow-hairs and hay-seeds on the milkman's coat. Whenever the car drew up before a house, he waited to catch a glimpse of a well-scrubbed kitchen or of a softly lighted hall, and to see how the servant would hold the jug and how she would close the door. He thought it should be a pleasant life enough, driving along the roads every evening to deliver milk, if he had warm gloves and a fat bag of ginger-nuts in his pocket to eat from. But the same foreknowledge which had sickened his heart and made his legs sag suddenly as he raced round the park, the same intuition which had made him glance with mistrust at his trainer's flabby stubble-covered face as it bent heavily over his long stained fingers, dissipated any vision of the future. In a vague way he understood that his father was in trouble, and that this was the reason why he himself had not been sent back to Clongo's. For some time he had felt the slight changes in his house, and these changes in what he had deemed unchangeable were so many slight shocks to his boyish conception of the world. The ambition which he felt astir at times in the darkness of his soul sought no outlet. A dusk like that of the outer world obscured his mind as he heard the mare's hoofs clattering along the tram-track on the rock road, and the great can swaying and rattling behind him. He returned to Mercedes, and, as he brooded upon her image, a strange unrest crept into his blood. Sometimes a fever gathered within him and led him to rove alone in the evening along the quiet avenue. The peace of the gardens and the kindly lights in the windows poured a tender influence into his restless heart. The noise of children at play annoyed him, and their silly voices made him feel, even more keenly than he had felt at Clongo's, that he was different from others. He did not want to play. He wanted to meet in the real world the unsubstantial image which his soul so constantly beheld. He did not know where to seek it or how but a premonition which led him on told him that this image would, without any overt act of his, encounter him. 
They would meet quietly as if they had known each other and had made their tryst, perhaps at one of the gates or in some more secret place. They would be alone, surrounded by darkness and silence, and in that moment of supreme tenderness he would be transfigured. He would fade into something impalpable under her eyes, and then, in a moment, he would be transfigured. Weakness and timidity and inexperience would fall from him in that magic moment. Two great yellow caravans had halted one morning before the door, and men had come tramping into the house to dismantle it. The furniture had been hustled out through the front garden, which was strewn with wisps of straw and rope-ends and into the huge vans at the gate. When all had been safely stowed, the vans had set off noisily down the avenue, and from the window of the railway carriage, in which he had sat with his red-eyed mother, Stephen had seen them lumbering heavily along the Marion Road. The parlour fire would not draw that evening, and Mr. Dedalus rested the poker against the bars of the grate to attract the flame. Uncle Charles dozed in a corner of the half-furnished, uncarpeted room, and near him the family portraits leaned against the wall. The lamp on the table shed a weak light over the boarded floor, muddied by the feet of the van-men. Stephen sat on a footstool beside his father, listening to a long and incoherent monologue. He understood little or nothing of it at first, but he became slowly aware that his father had enemies, and that some fight was going to take place. He felt, too, that he was being enlisted for the fight, that some duty was being laid upon his shoulders. The sudden flight from the comfort and reverie of Black Rock, the passage through the gloomy, foggy city, the thought of the bare, cheerless house in which they were now to live made his heart heavy and again an intuition or foreknowledge of the future came to him. He understood also why the servants had often whispered together in the hall, and why his father had often stood on the hearthrug with his back to the fire, talking loudly to Uncle Charles, who urged him to sit down and eat his dinner. "'There's a crack of the whip in me yet, Stephen, old chap,' said Mr. Dedalus, poking at the dull fire with fierce energy. "'We're not dead yet, Sonny. No!' By the Lord Jesus, God forgive me, nor half-dead. Dublin was a new and complex sensation. Uncle Charles had grown so witless that he could no longer be sent out on errands, and the disorder in settling in the new house left Stephen freer than he had been in Blackrock. In the beginning he contented himself with circling timidly round the neighbouring square, or at most going halfway down one of the side streets but when he had made a skeleton map of the city in his mind, he followed boldly one of its central lines until he reached the custom-house. He passed unchallenged among the docks and along the quays, wondering at the multitude of corks that lay bobbing on the surface of the water in a thick yellow scum, at the crowds of quay porters and the rumbling carts and the ill-dressed bearded policemen. The vastness and strangeness of the life suggested to him by the bales of merchandise stocked along the walls or swung aloft out of the holds of steamers wakened again in him the unrest which had sent him wandering in the evening from garden to garden in search of Mercedes. And amid this new bustling life he might have fancied himself in another Marseille, 
but that he missed the bright sky and the sun-warmed trellises of the wine-shops. A vague dissatisfaction grew up within him as he looked on the quays and on the river and on the lowering skies, and yet he continued to wander up and down day after day as if he really sought someone that eluded him. He went once or twice with his mother to visit their relatives, and, though they passed a jovial array of shops lit up and adorned for Christmas, his mood of embittered silence did not leave him. The causes of his embitterment were many, remote and near. He was angry with himself for being young and the prey of restless, foolish impulses, angry also with the change of fortune which was reshaping the world about him into a vision of squalor and insincerity. Yet his anger lent nothing to the vision. He chronicled with patience what he saw, detaching himself from it and testing its mortifying flavor in secret. He was sitting on the backless chair in his aunt's kitchen. A lamp with a reflector hung on the japanned wall of the fireplace, and by its light his aunt was reading the evening paper that lay on her knees. She looked a long time at a smiling picture that was set in it, and said musingly, THE BEAUTIFUL MABEL HUNTER. A ringleted girl stood on tiptoe to peer at the picture, and said softly, What is she in, Mud? In the pantomime, love. The child leaned her ringleted head against her mother's sleeve, gazing on the picture, and murmured as if fascinated, The beautiful Mabel Hunter. As if fascinated, her eyes rested long upon those demurely taunting eyes, and she murmured again devotedly, Isn't she an exquisite creature? And the boy who came in from the street, stamping crookedly under his stone of coal, heard her words. He dropped his load promptly on the floor and hurried to her side to see. But she did not raise her easeful head to let him see. He mauled the edges of the paper with his reddened and blackened hands, shouldering her aside and complaining that he could not see. He was sitting in the narrow breakfast-room, high up in the old dark-windowed house. The firelight flickered on the wall, and beyond the window a spectral dusk was gathering upon the river. Before the fire an old woman was busy making tea, and, as she bustled at her task, she told in a low voice of what the priest and the doctor had said. She told, too, of certain changes she had seen in her of late, and of her odd ways and sayings. He sat listening to the words and following the ways of adventure that lay open in the coals, arches and vaults and winding galleries and jagged caverns. Suddenly he became aware of something in the doorway. A skull appeared suspended in the gloom of the doorway. A feeble creature like a monkey was there, drawn thither by the sound of voices at the fire. A whining voice came from the door, asking, "'Is that Josephine?' The old bustling woman answered cheerily from the fireplace, "'No, Ellen, it's Stephen.' "'Oh! Oh! Good evening, Stephen!' He answered the greeting and saw a silly smile break over the face in the doorway. "'Do you want anything, Ellen?' asked the old woman at the fire. But she did not answer the question, and said, "'I thought it was Josephine. I thought you were Josephine, Stephen.' And, repeating this several times, she fell to laughing feebly. 
He was sitting in the midst of a children's party at Harold's Cross. His silent, watchful manner had grown upon him, and he took little part in the games. The children, wearing the spoils of their crackers, danced and romped noisily, and, though he tried to share their merriment, he felt himself a gloomy figure amid the gay cocked hats and sunbonnets. But when he had sung his song and withdrawn into a snug corner of the room, he began to taste the joy of his loneliness. The mirth, which in the beginning of the evening had seemed to him false and trivial, was like a soothing air to him, passing gaily by his senses, hiding from other eyes the feverish agitation of his blood, while through the circling of the dancers and amid the music and laughter her glance travelled to his corner, flattering, taunting, searching, exciting his heart. In the hall the children who had stayed latest were putting on their things. The party was over. She had thrown a shawl about her, and, as they went together towards the tram, sprays of her fresh, warm breath flew gaily above her cowled head, and her shoes tapped blithely on the glassy road. It was the last tram. The lank brown horses knew it, and shook their bells to the clear night in admonition. The conductor talked with the driver, both nodding often in the green light of the lamp. On the empty seats of the tram were scattered a few colored tickets. No sound of footsteps came up or down the road. No sound broke the peace of the night save when the lank brown horses rubbed their noses together and shook their bells. They seemed to listen, he on the upper step and she on the lower. She came up to his step many times, and went down to hers again between their phrases, and once or twice stood close beside him for some moments on the upper step, forgetting to go down, and then went down. His heart danced upon her movements like a cork upon a tide. He heard what her eyes said to him from beneath their cowl, and knew that in some dim past, whether in life or in reverie, he had heard their tale before. He saw her urge her vanities, her fine dress and sash and long black stockings, and knew that he had yielded to them a thousand times. Yet a voice within him spoke above the noise of his dancing heart, asking him would he take her gift to which he had only to stretch out his hand. And he remembered the day when he and Eileen had stood looking into the hotel grounds, watching the waiters running up a trail of bunting on the flagstaff, and the fox-terrier scampering to and fro on the sunny lawn, and how, all of a sudden, she had broken out into a peal of laughter and had run down the sloping curve of the path. Now, as then, he stood listlessly in his place, seemingly a tranquil watcher of the scene before him. She too wants me to catch hold of her, he thought. That's why she came with me to the tram. I could easily catch hold of her when she comes up to my step, Nobody is looking. I could hold her and kiss her. But he did neither, and when he was sitting alone in the deserted tram, he tore his ticket into shreds and stared gloomily at the corrugated footboard. The next day he sat at his table in the bare upper room for many hours. Before him lay a new pen, a new bottle of ink, and a new emerald exercise. From force of habit he had written at the top of the first page the initial letters of the Jesuit motto, A.M.D.G. On the first line of the page appeared the title of the verses he was trying to write, To E.C.
He knew it was right to begin so, for he had seen similar titles in the collected poems of Lord Byron. When he had written this title and drawn an ornamental line underneath, he fell into a daydream and began to draw diagrams on the cover of the book. He saw himself sitting at his table in Bray the morning after the discussion at the Christmas dinner-table, trying to write a poem about Parnell on the back of one of his father's second moiety notices. But his brain had then refused to grapple with the theme, and, desisting, he had covered the page with the names and addresses of certain of his classmates. Roderick Kickham, John Lawton, Anthony McSwiney, Simon Moonan. Now it seemed as if he would fail again, but, by dint of brooding on the incident, he thought himself into confidence. During this process all these elements which he deemed common and insignificant fell out of the scene. There remained no trace of the tram itself, nor of the tram-men, nor of the horses, nor did he and she appear vividly. The verses told only of the night, and the balmy breeze, and the maiden luster of the moon. Some undefined sorrow was hidden in the hearts of the protagonists as they stood in silence beneath the leafless trees, and when the moment of farewell had come, the kiss, which had been withheld by one, was given by both. After this the letters L.D.S. were written at the foot of the page, and, having hidden the book, he went into his mother's bedroom and gazed at his face for a long time in the mirror of her dressing-table. But his long spell of leisure and liberty was drawing to its end. One evening his father came home full of news which kept his tongue busy all through dinner. Stephen had been awaiting his father's return, for there had been mutton hash that day, and he knew that his father would make him dip his bread in the gravy. But he did not relish the hash, for the mention of Clongo's had coated his palate with a scum of disgust. "'I walked bang into him,' said Mr. Dedalus for the fourth time, "'just at the corner of the square.' "'Then I suppose,' said Mrs. Dedalus, "'he will be able to arrange it, I mean, about Belvedere?' "'Of course he will,' said Mr. Dedalus. "'Don't I tell you he's provincial of the order now?' "'I never liked the idea of sending him to the Christian brothers myself,' said Mrs. Dedalus. "'Christian brothers be damned,' said Mr. Dedalus. "'Is it with Paddy Stink and Mickey Mud? "'No, let him stick to the Jesuits in God's name since he began with them. "'They'll be of service to him in after years. "'Those are the fellows that can get you a position.' "'And they're a very rich order, aren't they, Simon?' "'Rather. They live well, I tell you. "'You saw their table at Clongo's. "'Fed up by God like gamecocks.' Mr. Dedalus pushed his plate over to Stephen and bade him finish what was on it. "'Now then, Stephen,' he said, "'you must put your shoulder to the wheel, old chap. You've had a fine long holiday.' "'Oh, I'm sure he'll work very hard now,' said Mrs. Dedalus, "'especially when he has Maurice with him.' "'Oh, holy Paul, I forgot about Maurice,' said Mr. Dedalus. "'Here, Maurice, come here, you thick-headed ruffian.' Do you know I'm going to send you to a college where they'll teach you how to spell C-A-T, cat? And I'll buy you a nice little penny handkerchief to keep your nose dry. Won't that be grand fun?" Maurice grinned at his father and then at his brother. Mr. Dedalus screwed his glass into his eye and stared hard at both his sons. 
Stephen mumbled his bread without answering his father's gaze. "'By the by,' said Mr. Dedalus at length, "'the rector, or provincial rather, was telling me that story about you and Father Dolan. You're an impudent thief,' he said. "'Oh, he didn't, Simon.' "'Not he,' said Mr. Dedalus, "'but he gave me a great account of the whole affair. "'We were chatting, you know, and one word borrowed another. "'And, by the way, who do you think he told me "'will get that job in the corporation? "'But I'll tell you that after. "'Well, as I was saying, we were chatting away quite friendly, "'and he asked me, did our friend here wear glasses still? "'And then he told me the whole story. "'And was he annoyed, Simon?' "'Annoyed? Not he!' "'Manly little chap,' he said. Mr. Dedalus imitated the mincing nasal tone of the provincial. "'Father Dolan and I, when I told them all at dinner about it, Father Dolan and I had a great laugh over it. "'You better mind yourself, Father Dolan,' said I, "'or young Dedalus will send you up for twice nine. "'We had a famous laugh together over it. Ha, ha, ha!' Mr. Dedalus turned to his wife and interjected in his natural voice, "'Shows you the spirit in which they take the boys there. "'Oh, a Jesuit for your life for diplomacy!' "'He reassumed the provincial's voice and repeated, "'I told them all at dinner about it, "'and Father Dolan and I and all of us "'we had a hearty laugh together over it. "'Ha, ha, ha!' End of chapter 2, part 1《A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man》by James Joyce. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Bobby. A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Chapter 2, Part 2. The night of the Whitsuntide play had come, and Stephen from the window of the dressing-room looked out on the small grass-plot across which lines of Chinese lanterns were stretched. He watched the visitors come down the steps from the house and pass into the theatre. Stewards in evening dress, old Belvedereans, loitered in groups about the entrance to the theatre and ushered in the visitors with ceremony. Under the sudden glow of a lantern, he could recognize the smiling face of a priest. The blessed sacrament had been removed from the tabernacle, and the first benches had been driven, so as to leave the dais of the altar and the space before it free. Against the walls stood companies of barbells and Indian clubs. The dumbbells were piled in one corner, and in the midst of countless hillocks of gymnasium shoes and sweaters and singlets in untidy brown parcels, there stood the stout leather-jacketed vaulting-horse waiting its turn to be carried up on the stage. A large bronze shield, tipped with silver, leaned against the panel of the altar, also waiting its turn to be carried up on the stage and set in the middle of the winning team at the end of the gymnastic display. Stephen, though in deference to his reputation for essay-writing he had been elected secretary to the gymnasium, had had no part in the first section of the programme, but in the play which formed the second section he had the chief part, that of a farcical pedagogue. He had been cast for it on account of his stature and grave manners, for he was now at the end of his second year at Belvedere and in number two. 
a score of the younger boys in white knickers and singlets came pattering down from the stage through the vestry and into the chapel the vestry and chapel were peopled with eager masters and boys the plump bald sergeant-major was testing with his foot the springboard of the vaulting horse the lean young man in a long overcoat who was to give a special display of intricate club swinging stood near watching with interest his silver-coated clubs peeping out of his deep side-pockets. The hollow rattle of the wooden dumbbells was heard as another team made ready to go up on the stage, and in another moment the excited prefect was hustling the boys through the vestry like a flock of geese, flapping the wings of his soutane nervously and crying to the laggards to make haste. A little troop of Neapolitan peasants were practicing their steps at the end of the chapel, some circling their arms above their heads, some swaying their baskets of paper violets and curtsying. In a dark corner of the chapel at the gospel side of the altar a stout old lady knelt amid her copious black skirts. When she stood up a pink-dressed figure, wearing a curly golden wig and an old-fashioned straw sunbonnet, with black penciled eyebrows and cheeks delicately rouged and powdered, was discovered. A low murmur of curiosity ran round the chapel at the discovery of this girlish figure. One of the prefects, smiling and nodding his head, approached the dark corner and, having bowed to the stout old lady, said pleasantly, "'Is this a beautiful young lady or a doll that you have here, Mrs. Tallon?' Then, bending down to peer at the smiling painted face under the leaf of the bonnet, he exclaimed, "'No! Upon my word, I believe it's little Bertie Tallon, after all!' Stephen at his post by the window heard the old lady and the priest laugh together and heard the boy's murmur of admiration behind him as they passed forward to see the little boy who had to dance the sunbonnet dance by himself. A movement of impatience escaped him. He let the edge of the blind fall and, stepping down from the bench on which he had been standing, walked out of the chapel. He passed out of the schoolhouse and halted under the shed that flanked the garden. From the theatre opposite came the muffled noise of the audience and sudden brazen clashes of the soldiers' band. The light spread upwards from the glass roof, making the theatre seem a festive ark anchored among the hulks of houses, her frail cables of lanterns looping her to her moorings. A side door of the theatre opened suddenly and a shaft of light flew across the grass-plots. A sudden burst of music issued from the ark, the prelude of a waltz and when the side-door closed again the listener could hear the faint rhythm of the music, the sentiment of the opening bars, their languor and supple movement, evoked the incommunicable emotion which had been the cause of all his day's unrest and of his impatient movement of a moment before. His unrest issued from him like a wave of sound, and on the tide of flowing music the ark was journeying, trailing her cables of lanterns in her wake. Then a noise like a dwarf artillery broke the movement. It was the clapping that greeted the entry of the dumbbell team on the stage. At the far end of the shed near the street a speck of pink light showed in the darkness, and as he walked towards it he became aware of a faint aromatic odor. Two boys were standing in the shelter of a doorway, smoking, and before he reached them he had recognized Heron by his voice. "'Here comes the noble Daedalus,' cried a high, throaty voice. "'Welcome to our trusty friend.' 
This welcome ended in a soft peal of mirthless laughter as Heron salaamed and then began to poke the ground with his cane. "'Here I am,' said Stephen, halting and glancing from Heron to his friend. The latter was a stranger to him, but in the darkness, by the aid of the glowing cigarette tips, he could make out a pale, dandyish face, over which a smile was travelling slowly, a tall, overcoated figure and a hard hat. Heron did not trouble himself about an introduction, but said instead, "'I was just telling my friend Wallace what a lark it would be tonight if you took off the rector in the part of the schoolmaster. It would be a ripping good joke.' Heron made a poor attempt to imitate for his friend Wallace the rector's pedantic bass, and then, laughing at his failure, asked Stephen to do it. "'Go on, Dedalus,' he urged. "'You can take him off rippingly.' He that will not hear the church, let him be to thee as the heathen and the publican. The imitation was prevented by a mild expression of anger from Wallace, in whose mouthpiece the cigarette had become too tightly wedged. Damn this blankety-blank holder, he said, taking it from his mouth and smiling and frowning upon it tolerantly. It's always getting stuck like that. Do you use a holder? I don't smoke answered Stephen. "'No,' said Heron, "'Dedalus is a model youth. He doesn't smoke, and he doesn't go to bazaars, and he doesn't flirt, and he doesn't damn anything or damn all.' Stephen shook his head and smiled in his rival's flushed and mobile face, beaked like a bird's. He had often thought it strange that Vincent Heron had a bird's face as well as a bird's name. A shock of pale hair lay on the forehead like a ruffled crest, the forehead was narrow and bony, and a thin hooked nose stood out between the close-set prominent eyes which were light and inexpressive. The rivals were school friends. They sat together in class, knelt together in the chapel, talked together after beads over their lunches. As the fellows in number one were undistinguished dullards, Stephen and Heron had been during the year the virtual heads of the school. It was they who went up to the rector together to ask for a free day, or to get a fellow off. "'Oh, by the way,' said Heron suddenly, "'I saw your governor going in.' The smile waned on Stephen's face. Any allusion made to his father by a fellow or by a master put his calm to rout in a moment. He waited in timorous silence to hear what Heron might say next. Heron, however, nudged him expressively with his elbow and said, you're a sly dog, Dedalus. Why so? said Stephen. You'd think butter wouldn't melt in your mouth, said Heron, but I'm afraid you're a sly dog. Might I ask you what you are talking about? said Stephen urbanely. Indeed you might, answered Heron. We saw her, Wallace, didn't we? And deucedly pretty she is, too, and so inquisitive. "'And what part does Stephen take, Mr. Dedalus? "'And will Stephen not sing, Mr. Dedalus?' "'Your governor was staring at her through that eyeglass of his "'for all he was worth, so that I think the old man has found you out, too. "'I wouldn't care a bit, by Jove. "'She's ripping, isn't she, Wallace?' "'Not half bad,' answered Wallace quietly, "'as he placed his holder once more in the corner of his mouth.' A shaft of momentary anger flew through Stephen's mind at these indelicate allusions in the hearing of a stranger. For him there was nothing amusing in a girl's interest and regard. 
All day he had thought of nothing but their leave-taking on the steps of the tram at Harold's Cross, the stream of moody emotions it had made to course through him, and the poem he had written about it. All day he had imagined a new meeting with her, for he knew that she was to come to the play. The old restless moodiness had again filled his breast as it had done on the night of the party, but had not found an outlet in verse. The growth and knowledge of two years of boyhood stood between then and now, forbidding such an outlet, and all day the stream of gloomy tenderness within him had started forth and returned upon itself in dark courses and eddies, wearying him in the end until the pleasantry of the prefect and the painted little boy had drawn from him a movement of impatience. "'So you may as well admit,' Heron went on, "'that we fairly found you out this time. You can't play the saint on me any more. That's one sure five. A soft peal of mirthless laughter escaped from his lips, and, bending down as before, he struck Stephen lightly across the calf of the leg with his cane, as if in jesting reproof. Stephen's movement of anger had already passed. He was neither flattered nor confused, but simply wished the banter to end. He scarcely resented what had seemed to him at first a silly indelicateness, for he knew that the adventure in his mind stood in no danger from their words, and his face mirrored his rival's false smile. "'Admit,' repeated Heron, striking him again with his cane across the calf of the leg. The stroke was playful, but not so lightly given as the first one had been. Stephen felt the skin tingle and glow slightly and almost painlessly. And bowing submissively, as if to meet his companion's jesting mood, began to recite the confitior. The episode ended well, for both Heron and Wallace laughed indulgently at the irreverence. The confession came only from Stephen's lips, and, while they spoke the words, a sudden memory had carried him to another scene called up, as if by magic, at the moment when he had noted the faint cruel dimples at the corners of Heron's smiling lips, and had felt the familiar stroke of the cane against his calf, and had heard the familiar word of admonition, Admit. It was towards the close of his first term in the college when he was in number six. His sensitive nature was still smarting under the lashes of an undivined and squalid way of life. His soul was still disquieted and cast down by the dull phenomenon of Dublin. He had emerged from a two years' spell of reverie to find himself in the midst of a new scene, every event and figure of which affected him intimately, disheartened him or allured, and, whether alluring or disheartening, filled him always with unrest and bitter thoughts. All the leisure which his school life left him was passed in the company of subversive writers whose jibes and violence of speech set up a ferment in his brain before they passed out of it into his crude writings. The essay was for him the chief labor of his week, and every Tuesday, as he marched from home to the school, he read his fate in the incidents of the way, pitting himself against some figure ahead of him and quickening his pace to outstrip it before a certain goal was reached, or planting his steps scrupulously in the spaces of the patchwork of the footpath, and telling himself that he would be first and not first in the weekly essay. On a certain Tuesday the course of his triumphs was rudely broken. Mr. Tate, the English master, pointed his finger at him and said bluntly, "'This fellow has heresy in his essay.' A hush fell on the class. 
Mr. Tate did not break it but dug with his hand between his crossed thighs while his heavily starched linen creaked about his neck and wrists. Stephen did not look up. It was a raw spring morning and his eyes were still smarting and weak. He was conscious of failure and of detection, of the squalor of his own mind and home, and felt against his neck the raw edge of his turned and jagged collar. A short loud laugh from Mr. Tate set the class more at ease. "'Perhaps you didn't know that,' he said. "'Where?' asked Stephen. Mr. Tate withdrew his delving hand and spread out the essay. Mm, "'Here. It's about the Creator and the soul. Mm, 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 ah, without a possibility of ever approaching nearer. That's heresy.' Stephen murmured, "'I meant without a possibility of ever reaching.' It was a submission, and Mr. Tate, appeased, folded up the essay and passed it across to him, saying, "'Oh, ah, ever-reaching. That's another story.' But the class was not so soon appeased. Though nobody spoke to him of the affair after class, he could feel about him a vague, general, malignant joy. A few nights after this public chiding he was walking with a letter along the Drumcondra road when he heard a voice cry, "'Halt!' He turned and saw three boys of his own class coming towards him in the dusk. It was Heron who had called out, and, as he marched forward between his two attendants, he cleft the air before him with a thin cane, in time to their steps. Boland, his friend, marched beside him, a large grin on his face, while Nash came on a few steps behind, blowing from the pace and wagging his great red head. As soon as the boys had turned into Clonliffe Road together, they began to speak about books and writers, saying what books they were reading and how many books there were in their father's bookcases at home. Stephen listened to them in some wonderment, for Bolin was the dunce and Nash the idler of the class. In fact, after some talk about their favorite writers, Nash declared for Captain Marriott, who, he said, was the greatest writer. "'Fudge,' said Heron. "'Ask Dedalus.' Who is the greatest writer, Dedalus? Stephen noted the mockery in the question and said, Of prose, do you mean? Yes. Newman, I think. Is it Cardinal Newman? asked Boland. Yes, answered Stephen. The grin broadened on Nash's freckled face as he turned to Stephen and said, And do you like Cardinal Newman, Dedalus? "'Oh, many say that Newman has the best prose style,' Heron said to the other two in explanation. "'Of course, he's not a poet.' "'And who is the best poet, Heron?' asked Boland. "'Lord Tennyson, of course,' answered Heron. "'Oh, yes, Lord Tennyson,' said Nash. "'We have all his poetry at home in a book.' At this Stephen forgot the silent vows he had been making and burst out, "'Tennyson a poet!' Why, he's only a rhymester. Oh, get out, said Heron. Everyone knows that Tennyson is the greatest poet. And who do you think is the greatest poet? asked Boland, nudging his neighbor. Byron, of course, answered Stephen. Heron gave the lead, and all three joined in a scornful laugh. What are you laughing at? asked Stephen. You, said Heron. Byron, the greatest poet. He's only a poet for uneducated people. He must be a fine poet.
poet,' said Boland. "'You may keep your mouth shut,' said Stephen, turning on him boldly. "'All you know about poetry is what you wrote up on the slates in the yard and were going to be sent to the loft for.' Boland, in fact, was said to have written on the slates in the yard a couplet about a classmate of his who often rode home from the college on a pony. As Tyson was riding into Jerusalem, he fell and hurt his Alec Kafuzalam. This thrust put the two lieutenants to silence, but Heron went on. In any case, Byron was a heretic, and immoral, too. I don't care what he was, cried Stephen hotly. You don't care whether he was a heretic or not? said Nash. "'What do you know about it?' shouted Stephen. "'You never read a line of anything in your life except a trans, or Boland, either.' "'I know that Byron was a bad man,' said Boland. "'Here, catch hold of this heretic,' Heron called out. In a moment Stephen was a prisoner. "'Tate made you buck up the other day,' Heron went on, "'about the heresy in your essay.' "'I'll tell him to-morrow,' said Boland. "'Will you?' said Stephen. "'You'd be afraid to open your lips.' "'Afraid? Aye, afraid of your life.' "'Behave yourself,' cried Heron, cutting at Stephen's legs with his cane. It was the signal for their onset. Nash pinioned his arms behind, while Boland seized a long cabbage stump which was lying in the gutter. Struggling and kicking under the cuts of the cane and the blows of the knotty stump, Stephen was borne back against a barbed wire fence. Admit that Byron was no good. No. Admit. No. Admit. No. No. At last, after a fury of plunges, he wrenched himself free. His tormentors set off towards Jones's road, laughing and jeering at him, while he, torn and flushed and panting, stumbled after them half-blinded with tears, clenching his fists madly and sobbing. While he was still repeating the confitior amid the indulgent laughter of his hearers, and while the scenes of that malignant episode were still passing sharply and swiftly before his mind, he wondered why he bore no malice now to those who had tormented him. He had not forgotten a whit of their cowardice and cruelty, but the memory of it called forth no anger from him. All the descriptions of fierce love and hatred which he had met in books had seemed to him, therefore, unreal. Even that night, as he stumbled homewards along Jones's road, he had felt that some power was divesting him of that sudden-woven anger as easily as a fruit is divested of its soft, ripe peel. He remained standing with his two companions at the end of the shed, listening idly to their talk or to the bursts of applause in the theatre. She was sitting there among the others, perhaps waiting for him to appear. He tried to recall her appearance, but could not. He could remember only that she had worn a shawl about her head like a cowl, and that her dark eyes had invited and unnerved him. He wondered had he been in her thoughts as she had been in his. Then in the dark and unseen by the other two he rested the tips of the fingers of one hand upon the palm of the other hand, scarcely touching it and yet pressing upon it lightly but the pressure of her fingers had been lighter and steadier. And suddenly the memory of their touch traversed his brain and body like an invisible warm wave. A boy came towards them, running along under the shed. He was excited and breathless. "'Oh, Dedalus!' he cried. "'Doyle is in a great bake about you. 
You're to go in at once and get dressed for the play. Hurry up, you'd better. He's coming now, said Heron to the messenger with a haughty drawl, when he wants to. The boy turned to Heron and repeated, But Doyle is in an awful bake. Will you tell Doyle with my best compliments that I damned his eyes? answered Heron. "'Well, I must go now,' said Stephen, who cared little for such points of honour. "'I wouldn't,' said Heron. "'Damn me if I would. "'That's no way to send for one of the senior boys. "'In a bake, indeed. "'I think it's quite enough that you're taking part in his bally old play.' This spirit of quarrelsome comradeship, which he had observed lately in his rival, had not seduced Stephen from his habits of quiet obedience. He mistrusted the turbulence and doubted the sincerity of such comradeship which seemed to him a sorry anticipation of manhood. The question of honour here raised was, like all such questions, trivial to him. While his mind had been pursuing its intangible phantoms and turning in irresolution from such pursuit, he had heard about him the constant voices of his father and of his masters, urging him to be a gentleman above all things, and urging him to be a good Catholic above all things. These voices had now come to be hollow-sounding in his ears. When the gymnasium had been opened, he had heard another voice urging him to be strong and manly and healthy, and when the movement towards national revival had begun to be felt in the college, yet another voice had bidden him to be true to his country and help to raise up her fallen language and tradition. In the profane world, as he foresaw, a worldly voice would bid him raise up his father's fallen state by his labours, and, meanwhile, the voice of his school comrades urged him to be a decent fellow, to shield others from blame, or to beg them off and to do his best to get free days for the school. And it was the din of all these hollow-sounding voices that made him halt irresolutely in the pursuit of phantoms. He gave them ear only for a time, but he was happy only when he was far from them, beyond their call, alone or in the company of phantasmal comrades. In the vestry a plump, fresh-faced Jesuit and an elderly man, in shabby blue clothes, were dabbling in a case of paints and chalks. The boys who had been painted walked about or stood still awkwardly, touching their faces in a gingerly fashion with their furtive fingertips. In the middle of the vestry a young Jesuit, who was then on a visit to the college, stood rocking himself rhythmically from the tips of his toes to his heels and back again, his hands thrust well forward into his side-pockets. His small head set off with glossy red curls, and his newly shaven face agreed well with the spotless decency of his soutane and with his spotless shoes. As he watched this swaying form and tried to read for himself the legend of the priest's mocking smile, there came into Stephen's memory a saying which he had heard from his father before he had been sent to Clongo's, that you could always tell a Jesuit by the style of his clothes. At the same moment he thought he saw a likeness between his father's mind and that of this smiling, well-dressed priest, and he was aware of some desecration of the priest's office or of the vestry itself, whose silence was now routed by loud talk and joking and its air pungent with the smells of the gas-jets and the grease. While his forehead was being wrinkled and his jaws painted black and blue by the elderly man, he listened distractedly to the voice of the plump young Jesuit which bade him speak up and make his points clearly. He could hear the band playing The Lily of Killarney, 
and knew that in a few moments the curtain would go up. He felt no stage fright, but the thought of the part he had to play humiliated him. A remembrance of some of his lines made a sudden flush rise to his painted cheeks. He saw her serious, alluring eyes watching him from among the audience, and their image at once swept away his scruples, leaving his will compact. Another nature seemed to have been lent him. The infection of the excitement and youth about him entered into and transformed his moody mistrustfulness. For one rare moment he seemed to be clothed in the real apparel of boyhood, and, as he stood in the wings among the other players, he shared the common mirth amid which the drop scene was hauled upwards by two able-bodied priests with violent jerks and all awry. A few moments after he found himself on the stage amid the garish gas and the dim scenery, acting before the innumerable faces of the void. It surprised him to see that the play which he had known at rehearsals for a disjointed, lifeless thing had suddenly assumed a life of its own. It seemed now to play itself, he and his fellow actors aiding it with their parts. When the curtain fell on the last scene he heard the void filled with applause and, through a rift in the side scene, saw the simple body before which he had acted magically deformed, the void of faces breaking at all points and falling asunder into busy groups. He left the stage quickly and rid himself of his mummery and passed out through the chapel into the college garden. Now that the play was over, his nerves cried for some further adventure. He hurried onwards as if to overtake it. The doors of the theatre were all open and the audience had emptied out. On the lines which he had fancied the moorings of an ark, a few lanterns swung in the night breeze, flickering cheerlessly. He mounted the steps from the garden in haste, eager that some prey should not elude him and forced his way through the crowd in the hall and past the two Jesuits who stood watching the exodus and bowing and shaking hands with the visitors. He pushed onward nervously, feigning a still greater haste and faintly conscious of the smiles and stares and nudges which his powdered head left in its wake. When he came out on the steps he saw his family waiting for him at the first lamp. In a glance he noted that every figure of the group was familiar and ran down the steps angrily. I have to leave a message down in George's street, he said to his father quickly. I'll be home after you. Without waiting for his father's questions, he ran across the road and began to walk at breakneck speed down the hill. He hardly knew where he was walking. Pride and hope and desire like crushed herbs in his heart sent up vapors of maddening incense before the eyes of his mind. He strode down the hill amid the tumult of sudden-risen vapours of wounded pride and fallen hope and baffled desire. They streamed upwards before his anguished eyes in dense and maddening fumes, and passed away above him till at last the air was clear and cold again. A film still veiled his eyes, but they burned no longer. A power, akin to that which had often made anger or resentment fall from him, brought his steps to rest. He stood still and gazed up at the sombre porch of the morgue, and from that to the dark cobbled laneway at its side. He saw the word LOTS on the wall of the lane and breathed slowly the rank, heavy air. That is horse-piss and rotted straw, he thought. It is a good odour to breathe. It will calm my heart. My heart is quite calm now. I will go back. 
End of chapter 2, part 2. Chapter 2, part 3 of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Bobby. A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Chapter 2, Part 3. Stephen was once again seated beside his father in the corner of a railway carriage at Kingsbridge. He was travelling with his father by the night mail to Cork. As the train steamed out of the station, he recalled his childish wonder of years before and every event of his first day at Clongo's. But he felt no wonder now. He saw the darkening lands slipping past him, the silent telegraph poles passing his window swiftly every four seconds, the little glimmering stations, manned by a few silent sentries, flung by the mail behind her and twinkling for a moment in the darkness like fiery grains flung backwards by a runner. He listened without sympathy to his father's evocation of cork and of scenes of his youth, a tale broken by sighs or draughts from his pocket-flask whenever the image of some dead friend appeared in it, or whenever the evoker remembered suddenly the purpose of his actual visit. Stephen heard, but could feel no pity. The images of the dead were all strange to him, save that of Uncle Charles, an image which had lately been fading out of memory. He knew, however, that his father's property was going to be sold by auction, and, in the manner of his own dispossession, he felt the world give the lie rudely to his fantasy. At Maryborough he fell asleep. When he awoke the train had passed out of Mallow, and his father was stretched asleep on the other seat. The cold light of the dawn lay over the country, over the unpeopled fields and the closed cottages. The terror of sleep fascinated his mind as he watched the silent country or heard from time to time his father's deep breath or sudden sleepy movement. The neighborhood of unseen sleepers filled him with strange dread as though they could harm him, and he prayed that the day might come quickly. His prayer, addressed neither to God nor saint, began with a shiver as the chilly morning breeze crept through the chink of the carriage door to his feet and ended in a trail of foolish words which he made to fit the insistent rhythm of the train. And silently, at intervals of four seconds, the telegraph poles held the galloping notes of the music between punctual bars. This furious music allayed his dread, and, leaning against the window-ledge, he let his eyelids close again. They drove in a jingle across Cork while it was still early morning, and Stephen finished his sleep in a bedroom of the Victoria Hotel. The bright warm sunlight was streaming through the window, and he could hear the din of traffic. His father was standing before the dressing-table, examining his hair and face and moustache with great care, craning his neck across the water-jug and drawing it back sideways to see the better. While he did so he sang softly to himself with quaint accent and phrasing, "'Tis youth and folly, 
makes young men marry. So here, my love, I'll no longer stay. What can't be cured, sure, must be endured, sure, so I'll go to America. My love, she's handsome, my love, she's bonny, she's like good whiskey when it is new, but when tis old and growing cold, it fades and dies like the mountain dew. The consciousness of the warm sunny city outside his window and the tender tremors with which his father's voice festooned the strange, sad, happy air drove off all the mists of the night's ill humour from Stephen's brain. He got up quickly to dress and, when the song had ended, said, "'That's much prettier than any of your other camellias. "'Do you think so?' asked Mr. Dedalus. "'I like it,' said Stephen." "'It's a pretty old air,' said Mr. Dedalus, twirling the points of his moustache. "'Ah, but you should have heard Mick Lacey sing it. "'Poor Mick Lacey! "'He had little turns for it, grace notes he used to put in that I haven't got. "'That was the boy who could sing a come-all you, if you like.' Mr. Dedalus had ordered drachines for breakfast, and during the meal he cross-examined the waiter for local news. For the most part, they spoke at cross-purposes when a name was mentioned, the waiter having in mind the present holder, and Mr. Dedalus his father, or perhaps his grandfather. "'Well, I hope they haven't moved the Queen's College anyhow,' said Mr. Dedalus, "'for I want to show it to this youngster of mine.' Along the Mardike the trees were in bloom. They entered the grounds of the college, and were led by the garrulous porter across the quadrangle but their progress across the gravel was brought to a halt after every dozen or so paces by some reply of the porters. "'Ah, oh, do you tell me so? And is poor Pottlebelly dead?' "'Yes, sir. Dead, sir.' During these halts Stephen stood awkwardly behind the two men, weary of the subject and waiting restlessly for the slow march to begin again. By the time they had crossed the quadrangle, his restlessness had risen to fever. He wondered how his father, whom he knew for a shrewd, suspicious man, could be duped by the servile manners of the porter, and the lively southern speech which had entertained him all the morning now irritated his ears. They passed into the anatomy theatre where Mr. Dedalus, the porter aiding him, searched the desks for his initials. Stephen remained in the background, depressed more than ever by the darkness and silence of the theatre, and by the air it wore of jaded and formal study. On the desk before him he read the word fetus, cut several times in the dark stained wood. The sudden legend startled his blood. He seemed to feel the absent students of the college about him, and to shrink from their company. A vision of their life which his father's words had been powerless to evoke, sprang up before him out of the word cut in the desk. A broad-shouldered student with a moustache was cutting in the letters with his jackknife, seriously. Other students stood or sat near him laughing at his handiwork. One jogged his elbow. The big student turned on him, frowning. He was dressed in loose grey clothes and had tan boots. Stephen's name was called. 
he hurried down the steps of the theatre so as to be as far away from the vision as he could be and, peering closely at his father's initials, hid his flushed face. But the word and the vision capered before his eyes as he walked back across the quadrangle and towards the college gate. It shocked him to find in the outer world a trace of what he had deemed till then a brutish and individual malady of his own mind. His recent monstrous reveries came thronging into his memory. They, too, had sprung up before him, suddenly and furiously, out of mere words. He had soon given in to them and allowed them to sweep across and debase his intellect, wondering always where they came from, from what den of monstrous images, and always weak and humble towards others, restless and sickened of himself when they had swept over him. "'Ay, bedad, and there's the groceries, sure enough,' cried Mr. Dedalus. "'You often heard me speak of the groceries, didn't you, Stephen? "'Many's the time we went down there when our names had been marked, a crowd of us, "'Harry Peard and Little Jack Mountain and Bob Dias and Maurice Moriarty, the Frenchman, "'and Tom O'Grady and Mick Lacey and that I told you of this morning, "'and Joey Corbett and poor little good-hearted Johnny Keevers of the Tantiles.' The leaves of the trees along the Mardyke were astir and whispering in the sunlight. A team of cricketers passed, agile young men in flannels and blazers, one of them carrying the long green wicket-bag. In a quiet by-street a German band of five players in faded uniforms and with battered brass instruments was playing to an audience of street Arabs and leisurely messenger boys. A maid in a white cap and apron was watering a box of plants on a sill which shone like a slab of limestone in the warm glare. From another window open to the air came the sound of a piano, scale after scale, rising into the treble. Stephen walked on at his father's side, listening to stories he had heard before, hearing again the names of the scattered and dead revellers who had been the companions of his father's youth and a faint sickness sighed in his heart. He recalled his own equivocal position in Belvedere, a free boy, a leader afraid of his own authority, proud and sensitive and suspicious, battling against the squalor of his life and against the riot of his mind. The letters cut in the stained wood of the desk stared upon him, mocking his bodily weakness and futile enthusiasms, and making him loathe himself for his own mad and filthy orgies. The spittle in his throat grew bitter and foul to swallow, and the faint sickness climbed to his brain so that for a moment he closed his eyes and walked on in darkness. He could still hear his father's voice. "'When you kick out for yourself, Stephen, as I dare say you will one of these days, remember, whatever you do, to mix with gentlemen.' When I was a young fellow, I tell you, I enjoyed myself. I mixed with fine, decent fellows. Every one of us could do something. One fellow had a good voice, another fellow was a good actor, another could sing a good comic song, another was a good oarsman or a good racket-player, another could tell a good story, and so on. We kept the ball rolling anyhow, and enjoyed ourselves, and saw a bit of life, and we were none the worse of it either. But we were all gentlemen, Stephen, at least I hope we were and bloody good honest Irishmen, too. That's the kind of fellows I want you to associate with, fellows of the right kidney. I'm talking to you as a friend, Stephen. I don't believe in playing the stern father. 
I don't believe a son should be afraid of his father. No, I treat you as your grandfather treated me when I was a young chap. We were more like brothers than father and son. I'll never forget the first day he caught me smoking. I was standing at the end of the South Terrace one day with some menines like myself, and sure we thought we were grand fellows because we had pipes stuck in the corners of our mouths. Suddenly the governor passed. He didn't say a word, or stop even. But the next day, Sunday, we were out for a walk together, and when we were coming home he took out his cigar-case and said, "'By the by, Simon, I didn't know you smoked,' or something like that. Of course I tried to carry it off as best I could. "'If you want a good smoke,' he said, "'try one of these cigars. An American captain made me a present of them last night in Queenstown.' Stephen heard his father's voice break into a laugh which was almost a sob. He was the handsomest man in Cork at that time. By God, he was! The women used to stand to look after him in the street. He heard the sob passing loudly down his father's throat and opened his eyes with a nervous impulse. The sunlight breaking suddenly on his sight turned the sky and clouds into a fantastic world of sombre masses with lake-like spaces of dark rosy light. His very brain was sick and powerless. He could scarcely interpret the letters of the signboards of the shops. By his monstrous way of life he seemed to have put himself beyond the limits of reality. Nothing moved him or spoke to him from the real world unless he heard in it an echo of the infuriated cries within him. He could respond to no earthly or human appeal, dumb and insensible to the call of summer and gladness and companionship, wearied and dejected by his father's voice. He could scarcely recognize as his his own thoughts, and repeated slowly to himself, I am Stephen Dedalus. I am walking beside my father, whose name is Simon Dedalus. We are in Cork, in Ireland. Cork is a city. Our room is in the Victoria Hotel. Victoria and Stephen and Simon. Simon and Stephen and Victoria. Names. The memory of his childhood suddenly grew dim. He tried to call forth some of its vivid moments, but could not. He recalled only names. Dante, Parnell, Klein, Klongos. A little boy had been taught geography by an old woman who kept two brushes in her wardrobe. Then he had been sent away from home to a college. In the college he had made his first communion and eaten Slim Jim out of his cricket cap and watched the firelight leaping and dancing on the wall of a little bedroom in the infirmary and dreamed of being dead of mass being said for him by the rector in a black and gold cope, of being buried then in the little graveyard of the community off the main avenue of limes. But he had not died then. Parnell had died. There had been no mass for the dead in the chapel and no procession. He had not died, but he had faded out like a film in the sun. He had been lost or had wandered out of existence, for he no longer existed. How strange to think of him passing out of existence in such a way, not by death, but by fading out in the sun or by being lost and forgotten somewhere in the universe. It was strange to see his small body appear again for a moment, a little boy in a grey belted suit. His hands were in his side pockets and his trousers were tucked in at the knees by elastic bands. 
On the evening of the day on which the property was sold, Stephen followed his father meekly about the city from bar to bar. To the sellers in the market, to the barmen and barmaids, to the beggars who importuned him for a lob, Mr. Dedalus told the same tale, that he was an old Corconian, that he had been trying for thirty years to get rid of his Cork accent up in Dublin, and that Peter Pekakafax beside him was his eldest son, but that he was only a Dublin Jackeen. They had set out early in the morning from Newcomb's coffee-house, where Mr. Dedalus's cup had rattled noisily against its saucer, and Stephen had tried to cover that shameful sign of his father's drinking-bout of the night before by moving his chair and coughing. One humiliation had succeeded another, the false smiles of the market-sellers, the curvettings and oglings of the barmaids with whom his father flirted, the compliments and encouraging words of his father's friends. They had told him that he had a great look of his grandfather, and Mr. Dedalus had agreed that he was an ugly likeness. They had unearthed traces of a cork accent in his speech, and made him admit that the Lee was a much finer river than the Liffey. One of them, in order to put his Latin to the proof, had made him translate short passages from Delectus, and asked him whether it was correct to say, Tempora mutantur nos et mutamur in illis, or tempora mutantur et nos mutantur in illis. Another, a brisk old man, whom Mr. Dedalus called Johnny Cashman, had covered him with a confusion by asking him to say which were prettier, the Dublin girls or the Cork girls. "'He's not that way built,' said Mr. Dedalus. "'Leave him alone. He's a level-headed thinking boy who doesn't bother his head about that kind of nonsense.' "'Then he's not his father's son,' said the little old man. "'I don't know, I'm sure,' said Mr. Dedalus, smiling complacently. "'Your father,' said the little old man to Stephen, "'was the boldest flirt in the city of Cork in his day. Do you know that?' Stephen looked down and studied the tiled floor of the bar into which they had drifted. "'Now don't be putting ideas into his head,' said Mr. Dedalus. "'Leave him to his maker.' Yara, sure. I wouldn't put any ideas into his head. I'm old enough to be his grandfather. And I am a grandfather, said the little old man to Stephen. Do you know that? Are you? asked Stephen. Bedad I am, said the little old man. I have two bouncing grandchildren out at Sunday's well. Now then, what age do you think I am? And I remember seeing your grandfather in his red coat riding out to hounds, that was before you were born. Aye, or thought of, said Mr. Dedalus. Be dad I did, repeated the little old man, and more than that, I can remember even your great-grandfather, old John Stephen Dedalus, and a fierce old fire-eater he was. Now then, there's a memory for you. That's three generations, four generations, said another of the company. Why, Johnny Cashman, you must be nearing the century. Well, I'll tell you the truth, said the little old man. I'm just twenty-seven years of age. We're as old as we feel, Johnny, said Mr. Dedalus, and just finish what you have there, and we'll have another. Here, Tim, or Tom, or whatever your name is, give us the same again here. By God, I don't feel more than eighteen myself. There's that son of mine there, not half my age, and I'm a better man than he is any day of the week. Draw it mild now, Dedalus. I think it's time for you to take a back seat. 
said the gentleman who had spoken before. No, by God, asserted Mr. Dedalus, I'll sing a tenor song against him, or I'll vault a five-barred gate against him, or I'll run with him after the hounds across the country as I did thirty years ago along with the carry boy and the best man for it. But he'll beat you here, said the little old man, tapping his forehead and raising his glass to drain it. Well, I hope he'll be as good a man as his father. That's all I can say, said Mr. Dedalus. If he is, he'll do, said the little old man. And thanks be to God, Johnny, said Mr. Dedalus, that we lived so long and did so little harm. But did so much good, Simon, said the little old man gravely. Thanks be to God we lived so long and did so much good. Stephen watched the three glasses being raised from the counter as his father and his two cronies drank to the memory of their past. An abyss of fortune or of temperament sundered him from them. His mind seemed older than theirs. It shone coldly on their strifes and happiness and regrets like a moon upon the younger earth. No life or youth stirred in him as it had stirred in them. He had known neither the pleasure of companionship with others, nor the vigor of rude male health, nor filial piety. Nothing stirred within his soul but a cold and cruel and loveless lust. His childhood was dead or lost, and with it his soul capable of simple joys, and he was drifting amid life like the barren shell of the moon. Art thou pale for weariness, of climbing heaven and gazing on the earth, wandering companionless? He repeated to himself the lines of Shelley's fragment, its alternation of sad human ineffectualness with vast inhuman cycles of activity chilled him, and he forgot his own human and ineffectual grieving. Stephen's mother and his brother and one of his cousins waited at the corner of quiet Foster Place, while he and his father went up the steps and along the colonnade where the highland sentry was parading. When they had passed into the great hall and stood at the counter, Stephen drew forth his orders on the governor of the Bank of Ireland for thirty and three pounds, and these sums, the monies of his exhibition and essay prize, were paid over to him rapidly by the teller in notes and in coin, respectively. He bestowed them in his pockets with feigned composure, and suffered the friendly teller, to whom his father chatted, to take his hand across the broad counter and wish him a brilliant career in after-life. He was impatient of their voices and could not keep his feet at rest. But the teller still deferred the serving of others to say he was living in changed times, and that there was nothing like giving a boy the best education that money could buy. Mr. Dedalus lingered in the hall, gazing about him, and up at the roof, and telling Stephen, who urged him to come out, that they were standing in the House of Commons of the old Irish Parliament. "'God help us!' he said piously, "'to think of the men of those times, Stephen, Healy Hutchinson, and Flood, and Henry Grattan, and Charles Kendall Bush, and the noblemen we have now,' leaders of the Irish people at home and abroad. Why, by God, they wouldn't be seen dead in a ten-acre field with them. No, Stephen, old chap, 
I'm sorry to say that they are only as I roved out one fine May morning in the merry month of sweet July. A keen October wind was blowing round the bank. The three figures standing at the edge of the muddy path had pinched cheeks and watery eyes. Stephen looked at his thinly clad mother and remembered that a few days before he had seen a mantle priced at twenty guineas in the windows of Bernardo's. "'Well, that's done,' said Mr. Dedalus. "'We had better go to dinner,' said Stephen. "'Where?' "'Dinner,' said Mr. Dedalus. "'Well, I suppose we had better. What?' "'Some place that's not too dear,' said Mrs. Dedalus. "'Underdones?' "'Yes, some quiet place.' "'Come along,' said Stephen quickly. "'It doesn't matter about the dearness.' He walked on before them with short, nervous steps, smiling. They tried to keep up with him, smiling also at his eagerness. "'Take it easy like a good young fellow,' said his father. "'We're not out for the half-mile, are we?' For a swift season of merrymaking, the money of his prizes ran through Stephen's fingers. Great parcels of groceries and delicacies and dried fruits arrived from the city. Every day he drew up a bill of fare for the family, and every night led a party of three or four to the theatre to see Ingomar or the Lady of Lyon. In his coat pockets he carried squares of Vienna chocolate for his guests, while his trousers pockets bulged with masses of silver and copper coins. He bought presents for everyone, overhauled his room, wrote out resolutions, marshaled his books up and down their shelves, poured upon all kinds of price-lists, drew up a form of commonwealth for the household by which every member of it held some office, opened a loan-bank for his family and pressed loans on willing borrowers, so that he might have the pleasure of making out receipts and reckoning the interests on the sums lent. When he could do no more he drove up and down the city in trams. Then the season of pleasure came to an end. The pot of pink enamel paint gave out, and the wainscot of his room remained with its unfinished and ill-plastered coat. His household returned to its usual way of life. His mother had no further occasion to upbraid him for squandering his money. He too returned to his old life at school, and all his novel enterprises fell to pieces. The commonwealth fell, the loan bank closed its coffers and its books on a sensible loss. The rules of life which he had drawn about himself fell into desuetude. How foolish his aim had been! He had tried to build a breakwater of order and elegance against the sordid tide of life without him, and to dam up, by rules of conduct and active interests and new filial relations, the powerful recurrence of the tides within him. Useless! From without, as from within, the water had flowed over his barriers. Their tides began once more to jostle fiercely above the crumbled mole. He saw clearly, too, his own futile isolation. He had not gone one step nearer the lives he had sought to approach, nor bridged the restless shame and rancor that divided him from mother and brother and sister. He felt that he was hardly of the one blood with them, but stood to them rather in the mystical kinship of fosterage, foster-child, and foster-brother. He burned to appease the fierce longings of his heart before which everything else was idle and alien. He cared little that he was in mortal sin. 
that his life had grown to be a tissue of subterfuge and falsehood. Beside the savage desire within him to realize the enormities which he brooded on, nothing was sacred. He bore cynically with the shameful details of his secret riots, in which he exulted to defile with patience whatever image had attracted his eyes. By day and by night he moved among distorted images of the outer world. A figure that had seemed to him by day demure and innocent came towards him by night through the winding darkness of sleep, her face transfigured by a lecherous cunning, her eyes bright with brutish joy. Only the morning pained him with its dim memory of dark orgiastic riot, its keen and humiliating sense of transgression. He returned to his wanderings. The veiled autumnal evenings led him from street to street as they had led him years before along the quiet avenues of Blackrock. But no vision of trim front gardens or of kindly lights in the windows poured a tender influence upon him now. Only at times, in the pauses of his desire, when the luxury that was wasting him gave room to a softer languor, the image of Mercedes traversed the background of his memory. He saw again the small white house and the garden of rose-bushes on the road that led to the mountains, and he remembered the sadly proud gesture of refusal which he was to make there, standing with her in the moonlit garden after years of estrangement and adventure. At those moments the soft speeches of Claude Melnot rose to his lips and eased his unrest. A tender premonition touched him of the tryst he had then looked forward to and, in spite of the horrible reality which lay between his hope of then and now, of the holy encounter he had then imagined at which weakness and timidity and inexperience were to fall from him. Such moments passed, and the wasting fires of lust sprang up again. The verses passed from his lips, and the inarticulate cries and the unspoken brutal words rushed forth from his brain to force a passage. His blood was in revolt. He wandered up and down the dark slimy streets, peering into the gloom of lanes and doorways, listening eagerly for any sound. He moaned to himself like some baffled prowling beast. He wanted to sin with another of his kind, to force another being to sin with him and to exult with her in sin. He felt some dark presence moving irresistibly upon him from the darkness, a presence subtle and murmurous as a flood filling him wholly with itself. Its murmur besieged his ears like the murmur of some multitude in sleep. Its subtle streams penetrated his being. His hands clenched convulsively, and his teeth set together as he suffered the agony of its penetration. He stretched out his arms in the street to hold fast the frail swooning form that eluded him and incited him and the cry that he had strangled for so long in his throat issued from his lips. It broke from him like a wail of despair from a hell of sufferers, and died in a wail of furious entreaty, a cry for an iniquitous abandonment, a cry which was but the echo of an obscene scrawl which he had read on the oozing wall of a urinal. He had wandered into a maze of narrow and dirty streets. From the foul laneways he heard bursts of hoarse riot and wrangling and the drawling of drunken singers. He walked onward, undismayed, 
wondering whether he had strayed into the quarter of the Jews. Women and girls dressed in long, vivid gowns traversed the street from house to house. They were leisurely and perfumed. A trembling seized him, and his eyes grew dim. The yellow gas-flames arose before his troubled vision against the vapory sky, burning as if before an altar. Before the doors and in the lighted halls groups were gathered arrayed as for some rite. He was in another world. He had awakened from a slumber of centuries. He stood still in the middle of the roadway, his heart clamoring against his bosom in a tumult. A young woman dressed in a long pink gown laid her hand on his arm to detain him and gazed into his face. She said gaily, "'Good night, Willie dear.' Her room was warm and lightsome. A huge doll sat with her legs apart in the copious easy-chair beside the bed. He tried to bid his tongue speak that he might seem at ease, watching her as she undid her gown, noting the proud, conscious movements of her perfumed head. As he stood silent in the middle of the room, she came over to him and embraced him gaily and gravely. Her round arms held him firmly to her, and he, seeing her face lifted to him in serious calm, and feeling the warm, calm rise and fall of her breast, all but burst into hysterical weeping. Tears of joy and relief shone in his delighted eyes, and his lips parted, though they would not speak. She passed her tinkling hand through his hair, calling him a little rascal. "'Give me a kiss,' she said. His lips would not bend to kiss her. He wanted to be held firmly in her arms, to be caressed slowly, slowly, slowly. In her arms he felt that he had suddenly become strong and fearless and sure of himself. But his lips would not bend to kiss her. With a sudden movement she bowed his head and joined her lips to his, and he read the meaning of her movements in her frank uplifted eyes. It was too much for him. He closed his eyes, surrendering himself to her, body and mind, conscious of nothing in the world but the dark pressure of her softly parting lips. They pressed upon his brain as upon his lips, as though they were the vehicle of a vague speech. And between them he felt an unknown and timid pressure, darker than the swoon of sin, softer than sound or odor. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3, Part 1 of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Bobby. A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Chapter 3, Part 1. The swift December dusk had come tumbling clownishly after its dull day, and, as he stared through the dull square of the window of the schoolroom, he felt his belly crave for its food. He hoped there would be stew for dinner, turnips and carrots and bruised potatoes and fat mutton pieces to be ladled out in thick, peppered, flour-fattened sauce. Stuff it into you, his belly counseled him. 
it would be a gloomy, secret night. After early nightfall the yellow lamps would light up here and there the squalid quarter of the brothels. He would follow a devious course up and down the streets, circling always nearer and nearer in a tremor of fear and joy, until his feet led him suddenly round a dark corner. The whores would be just coming out of their houses, making ready for the night, yawning lazily after their sleep and settling the hairpins in their clusters of hair. He would pass by them calmly, waiting for a sudden movement of his own will or a sudden call to his sin-loving soul from their soft, perfumed flesh. Yet, as he prowled in quest of that call, his senses, stultified only by his desire, would note keenly all that wounded or shamed them. His eyes, a ring of porter-froth on a clothless table or a photograph of two soldiers standing to attention or a gaudy playbill. His ears, the drawling jargon of greeting. "'Hello, Bertie. Any good in your mind? Is that you, Pigeon? Number ten. Fresh Nelly is waiting on you. Good night, husband. Coming in to have a short time?' The equation on the page of his scribbler began to spread out a widening tail, eyed and starred like a peacock's, and, when the eyes and stars of its indices had been eliminated, began slowly to fold itself together again. The indices appearing and disappearing were eyes opening and closing. The eyes opening and closing were stars being born and being quenched. The vast cycle of starry life bore his weary mind outward to its verge and inward to its centre, a distant music accompanying him outward and inward. What music? The music came nearer and he recalled the words, the words of Shelley's fragment upon the moon wandering companionless, pale for weariness. The stars began to crumble and a cloud of fine stardust fell through space. The dull light fell more faintly upon the page whereon another equation began to unfold itself slowly and to spread abroad its widening tail. It was his own soul going forth to experience, unfolding itself sin by sin, spreading abroad the bale-fire of its burning stars and folding back upon itself, fading slowly, quenching its own lights and fires. They were quenched and the cold darkness filled chaos. A cold, lucid indifference reigned in his soul. At his first violent sin he had felt a wave of vitality pass out of him, and had feared to find his body or his soul maimed by the excess. Instead the vital wave had carried him on its bosom out of himself and back again when it receded, and no part of body or soul had been maimed but a dark peace had been established between them. The chaos in which his ardor extinguished itself was a cold, indifferent knowledge of himself. He had sinned mortally, not once but many times, and he knew that, while he stood in danger of eternal damnation for the first sin alone, by every succeeding sin he multiplied his guilt and his punishment. His days and works and thoughts could make no atonement for him, the fountains of sanctifying grace having ceased to refresh his soul. At most, by an alms given to a beggar whose blessing he fled from, he might hope wearily to win for himself 
some measure of actual grace. Devotion had gone by the board. What did it avail to pray when he knew that his soul lusted after its own destruction? A certain pride, a certain awe, withheld him from offering to God even one prayer at night, though he knew it was in God's power to take away his life while he slept and hurl his soul hellward ere he could beg for mercy. His pride in his own sin, his loveless awe of God, told him that his offence was too grievous to be atoned for in whole or in part by a false homage to the all-seeing and all-knowing. "'Well now, Ennis, I declare you have a head, and so has my stick. Do you mean to say that you are not able to tell me what a surd is?' The blundering answer stirred the embers of his contempt of his fellows. Towards others he felt neither shame nor fear. On Sunday mornings, as he passed the church door, he glanced coldly at the worshippers who stood bareheaded, four-deep, outside the church, morally present at the mass which they could neither see nor hear. Their dull piety and the sickly smell of the cheap hair-oil with which they had anointed their heads repelled him from the altar they prayed at. He stooped to the evil of hypocrisy with others, skeptical of their innocence which he could cajole so easily. On the wall of his bedroom hung an illuminated scroll, the certificate of his prefecture in the College of the Sodality of the Blessed Virgin Mary. On Saturday mornings, when the Sodality met in the chapel to recite the little office, his place was a cushioned kneeling-desk at the right of the altar from which he led his wing of boys through the responses. The falsehood of his position did not pain him. If at moments he felt an impulse to rise from his post of honour and, confessing before them all his unworthiness, to leave the chapel, a glance at their faces restrained him. The imagery of the psalms of prophecy soothed his barren pride. The glories of Mary held his soul captive, spikenard and myrrh and frankincense, symbolizing the preciousness of God's gifts to her soul, rich garments, symbolizing her royal lineage, her emblems, the late flowering plant and late blossoming tree, symbolizing the age-long gradual growth of her cultus among men. When it fell to him to read the lesson towards the close of the office, he read it in a veiled voice, lulling his conscience to its music. Quasi cedrus exaltata sum in Lebanon, et quasi cupressus in Monte Sion. Quasi palma exaltata sum in Gades, et quasi plantatio rosae in Jericho. Quasi uliva speciosa in Campis, et quasi platanus exaltata sum juxta aquam in Plateus. Sicut cinnamomum et balsamum erumotizans, odorem dedi et quasi mira electa dedi suaviwatem odoris. His sin, which had covered him from the sight of God, had led him nearer to the refuge of sinners. Her eyes seemed to regard him with mild pity, her holiness a strange light glowing faintly upon her frail flesh, did not humiliate the sinner who approached her. If ever he was impelled to cast sin from him and to repent, the impulse that moved him was the wish to be her knight. If ever his soul, 
re-entering her dwelling shyly after the frenzy of his body's lust had spent itself, was turned towards her whose emblem is the morning star, bright and musical, telling of heaven and infusing peace. It was when her names were murmured softly by lips whereon there still lingered foul and shameful words, the savour itself of a lewd kiss. That was strange. He tried to think how it could be, but the dusk, deepening in the schoolroom, covered over his thoughts. The bell rang. The master marked the sums and cuts to be done for the next lesson and went out. Heron, beside Stephen, began to hum tunelessly, My excellent friend Bombados. Ennis, who had gone to the yard, came back, saying, The boy from the house is coming up for the rector. A tall boy behind Stephen rubbed his hands and said, That's game ball. We can scut the whole hour. He won't be in till half after two. Then you can ask him questions on the catechism, Dedalus. Stephen, leaning back and drawing idly on his scribbler, listened to the talk about him, which Heron checked from time to time by saying, Shut up, will you? Don't make such a bally racket. It was strange, too, that he found an arid pleasure in following up to the end the rigid lines of the doctrines of the church, and penetrating into obscure silences only to hear and feel the more deeply his own condemnation. The sentence of St. James, which says that he who offends against one commandment becomes guilty of all, had seemed to him first a swollen phrase, until he had begun to grope in the darkness of his own state. From the evil seed of lust all other deadly sins had sprung forth, pride in himself and contempt of others, covetousness in using money for the purchase of unlawful pleasure, envy of those whose vices he could not reach to, and calumnious murmuring against the pious, gluttonous enjoyment of food, the dull glowering anger amid which he brooded upon his longing, the swamp of spiritual and bodily sloth in which his whole being had sunk. As he sat in his bench gazing calmly at the rector's shrewd, harsh face, his mind wound itself in and out of the curious questions proposed to it. If a man had stolen a pound in his youth and had used that pound to amass a huge fortune, how much was he obliged to give back? The pound he had stolen only, or the pound together with the compound interest accruing upon it, or all his huge fortune. If a layman, in giving baptism, pour the water before saying the words, is the child baptized? Is baptism with mineral water valid? How comes it that while the first beatitude promises the kingdom of heaven to the poor of heart, the second beatitude promises also to the meek that they shall possess the land? Why was the sacrament of the Eucharist instituted under the two species of bread and wine, if Jesus Christ be present body and blood, soul and divinity, in the bread alone and in the wine alone? Does a tiny particle of the consecrated bread contain all the body and blood of Jesus Christ, or a part only of the body and blood? If the wine change into vinegar, and the host crumble into corruption after they have been consecrated, is Jesus Christ still present under their species as God and as man? Here he is! Here he is! A boy from his post at the window had seen the rector come from the house. All the catechisms were opened and all heads bent upon them silently. The rector entered and took his seat on the dais. 
A gentle kick from the tall boy in the bench behind urged Stephen to ask a difficult question. The rector did not ask for a catechism to hear the lesson from. He clasped his hands on the desk and said, The retreat will begin on Wednesday afternoon in honour of St. Francis Xavier, whose feast day is Saturday. The retreat will go on from Wednesday to Friday. On Friday, confession will be heard all the afternoon after beads. If any boys have special confessors, perhaps it will be better for them not to change. Mass will be on Saturday morning at nine o'clock, and general communion for the whole college. Saturday will be a free day. Sunday, of course. But Saturday and Sunday being free days, some boys might be inclined to think that Monday is a free day also. Beware of making that mistake. I think you, Lawless, are likely to make that mistake. I, sir? Why, sir? A little wave of quiet mirth broke forth over the class of boys from the rector's grim smile. Stephen's heart began slowly to fold and fade with fear, like a withering flower. The rector went on gravely. You are all familiar with the story of the life of St. Francis Xavier, I suppose, the patron of your college. He came of an old and illustrious Spanish family, and you remember that he was one of the first followers of St. Ignatius. They met in Paris, where Francis Xavier was a professor of philosophy at the university. This young and brilliant nobleman and man of letters entered heart and soul into the ideas of our glorious founder, and you know that he, at his own desire, was sent by St. Ignatius to preach to the Indians. He is called, as you know, the Apostle of the Indies. He went from country to country in the East, from Africa to India, from India to Japan, baptizing the people. He is said to have baptized as many as ten thousand idolaters in one month. It is said that his right arm had grown powerless from having been raised so often over the heads of those whom he baptized. He wished then to go to China to win still more souls for God, but he died of fever on the island of Sancian. A great saint, St. Francis Xavier, a great soldier of God. The rector paused, and then, shaking his clasped hands before him, went on. He had the faith in him that moves mountains. Ten thousand souls won for God in a single month. That is a true conqueror, true to the motto of our order, Ad Maiorum Dei Gloriam. A saint who has great power in heaven, remember, power to intercede for us in our grief, power to obtain whatever we pray for, if it be for the good of our souls, power above all to obtain for us the grace to repent if we be in sin. A great saint, St. Francis Xavier, a great fisher of souls. He ceased to shake his clasped hands, and, resting them against his forehead, looked right and left of them keenly at his listeners out of his dark stern eyes. In the silence their dark fire kindled the dusk into a tawny glow. Stephen's heart had withered up like a flower of the desert that feels the simoom coming from afar. End of chapter 3, part 1 Of a Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.